Well, we are nearing the end of our study of the book of Revelation. This is week six. Um, we're going to wrap things up next week. Um, and that's kind of the good part we've been waiting for. But um, but it's been a kind of hard journey. And um, maybe uh, if you're like me, you're suffering from what I will call symbol fatigue. There's been a whole lot of symbols in this book. And maybe you're suffering from it the way I am. Uh, let, let me tell you what I mean by, um, let me illustrate what I mean by symbol fatigue. Um, you, you all know the symbols for the Republican and Democratic parties, right? What's, what's a Democrat? What's their symbol? It's a donkey. Okay, what's the symbol for Republicans? Okay, well, maybe you, you know that those come from a political cartoonist of the 1800s. Uh, right after the Civil War, there was a, um, a political cartoonist named Thomas Nast, and in 1870, he drew this cartoon. It's a donkey kicking a lion, and that donkey symbolized the Democratic Party, and that came to represent Democrats. So that's where that comes from. Four years later, he drew another cartoon, and this is where the Republican elephant comes from. So you can see the elephant there, and the writing's too small to see, but it says, it says, Republican vote. So uh, the next picture shows that a little zeroed in on that. So I don't know if you can read that. It says the Republican vote there on his side. So that came to symbolize the Republican Party. And now both of the uh, political parties use those symbols. They're very happy with them. Um, but if you look at this picture, it's a little more complicated than the other one. So the next picture shows a donkey. So it's a donkey wearing a lion's skin. But it's not the Democratic donkey. It's actually the New York Herald, uh, a newspaper at the time. And the next picture shows us where the Democrats are in this picture. It's the Democratic fox. The fox is hiding in the um, in the uh, bushes there. And I don't get this cartoon, um, but it gets worse. The next picture shows shows us kind of the whole thing again. And there's like an ostrich with its head in the sand, and there's there's little rabbits. And next to the rabbits, it says temperance. And some of the other animals are labeled after newspapers of the day. Um, and the the owl is carrying um, uh, back up. Uh, the owl is carrying something, and if you read it in the original, it says arithmetic. And I have no idea what all these symbols mean. I just, you know, temperance and, and arithmetic and newspapers, and I just don't know what is it with all these symbols. And it reminded me of an of a article I read in The Onion um, a couple of years ago that said this. Um, it says, political cartoon, even more boring and confusing than the issue. And, and it imagines a, an interview with a local resident who explains how they didn't get this cartoon because it had uh, donkeys and elephants, but it also had like ethanol and other things that they just didn't even quite understand what all, all that was about. So if we're at the place now in our reading of, of Revelation where we're kind of going, all right, I am kind of overwhelmed by all these symbols. Um, well, that happens. And the good news is is it's getting, it's getting clearer. John has kind of a, a, a far-sighted approach to uh, the, the history of salvation. The things that are right up in his face, he can't see as clearly or he can't communicate as clearly to us. Um, but as he looks forward to the end of the age, he actually sees things more clearly. So uh, uh, as we see, the symbols in chapter 17 are more murky than the, the symbols in 19. And then in 21 and 22, you'll see it's the next week, you'll see it's as clear as can be. So so hang on. And that is really kind of the the big idea in today's passage. It's It's the idea of hanging on. Because help is on the way. Um, there is this image, though, that we have to get past first. The image in chapter 17, the image of Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes. And it is um, a disturbing image. And yet I think it's important to our understanding of chapter 19 to look first at chapter 17. At the beginning of chapter 19, we read about the, the announcement of the wedding between 
the Lamb and His Bride, the church. And in it, uh, from that passage comes the famous uh, text that became ultimately the Hallelujah Chorus. If you're familiar with Handel, the, the Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus comes from the beginning of chapter 19, and there are four hallelujahs in that passage of Scripture. And uh, it's the only place in the New Testament that this Hebrew word appears. It's all through the Old Testament, but it's only four times in the New Testament. They're all in chapter 19. And of those four hallelujahs, three of them look backwards. Hallelujah, Babylon is no more. And one of them looks forward. Hallelujah, the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And that's the one that Handel chose to make into his song. But, but John wants us to contrast Babylon, the city of the world, with the city of God. He's going to reveal the city of God to us in uh, chapter 21 and 22 coming up. But before he does, he's going to contrast Babylon with Christ. Babylon with the one who inaugurates the marriage of heaven and earth. The one who, who inaugurates the coming city of God. So it is important that we see this contrast the way John wants us to. And yet for all that, it is a disturbing image. And I think it plays into two stereotypes that people have about Christianity. The first is that Christianity is a very prudish religion and it's obsessed with sexuality. And John would laugh, honestly. John would say, you have no idea. You have no idea what sexuality was like in the first century. Uh, picture, you know, the most offensive thing you ever imagined at Las Vegas and multiply it by six or because this is Revelation, multiply it by 666. John would have said that his era knew everything we can imagine about sexuality and commercialized it and advertised it. They made sexuality a part of everyday life in a way that we literally cannot imagine. So John would, John would dispute that first charge. But there is a second charge, which is that this represents a patriarchal worldview in which um, men would be fine if it weren't for women, that women represent some kind of a temptress. And, you know, I was fine, but, you know, not the devil made me do it, but she made me do it. And there may be some justice in that argument. But I will note this. In chapter 12, in chapter 12, there is a radiant woman. And it is the fact that she has escaped from the devil that sends the devil into a rage on earth. And in chapter 19, the entire church is likened to a woman, the bride of Christ. So um, there may be some truth in it, but I don't think it's as simple as that stereotype. So, so with that kind of out of the way, what I'd like to do is look at the beginning of chapter 17 and then kind of the middle section of chapter 19. So we begin in chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. The seven bowls. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the seven seals. And then we kind of jumped over the, the passage where we hear about the seven trumpets. And then um, we've also jumped over the part where we hear about uh, the seven bowls of God's wrath. But we do get just a, a touch here because one of the angels who had been involved in that comes over and speaks to him. And he says, come with me and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. What's the deal with her? The kings of the world have committed adultery with her. And the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. Those are two very serious charges. Imagine if you lived in a time where people with a straight face said that the leaders of your country had colluded with a foreign government 
in order to achieve political power. <laughs> That's a very serious charge. He says, the kings of this earth have committed adultery with her. And the second charge is actually worse because kings do what kings do, right? We don't have any control over that. But the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. What does that mean? That means people have looked at Babylon. We're going to hear more about Babylon in a moment. People have looked at Babylon and they've said, she looks like the safe bet. You know, the world's full of confusion and uncertainty. You never know which horse to back. But when I look around... I see one source of power in the world, and I'm going to hitch my star to her wagon. The people of this world have become drunk by her immorality. So, the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, and blasphemies against God were written all over it. So this is the woman, the woman Babylon the Great. And she's sitting on a scarlet beast, Now, if we read the rest of chapter 17, we find out the woman is a symbol that means Rome. And we also find out that the beast is a symbol that means Rome. So Rome is pictured here twice in this one picture, and it's kind of a little puzzling how that could be. Talk to John when you get to heaven. Maybe he can clarify that for you. But um, I've read uh, proposals that suggest that perhaps the woman represents the, the corrupt culture of an imperial capital where where slaves and wealth are imported from from subject peoples outside of the country. And so uh, the decadence of the, of the Roman imperial lifestyle is supported by these um, foreigners who are oppressed abroad. So perhaps that's what the woman represents um, and the beast represents the intrigues and the political maneuvering of, of the elites, the emperors and would-be emperors of Rome. Perhaps that's what it means. But remember, last week we saw how the beast... And the woman, uh, uh, if they represent Rome, and John tells us they do, Rome is not really Rome. This is why we have the symbol fatigue. Rome is a symbol for the world system, the, the corrupt world that believes that you can get your results by power, that if you are strong enough, then you can make everybody else do what you want to do. And Rome represents that mindset as opposed to the mindset of Christ. So he sees this woman sitting on the beast, and... She looks pretty good. She's a looker. She's got, she's got purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. But on closer inspection, when you get a little closer and look a little closer, you see she's not as pretty as you thought she was at first. She's really kind of ugly. She's got a golden goblet in her hand, but what's in the goblet? It's filled with obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. This week I was looking at a commentary trying to understand what is the significance of each one of those words, the the uh, obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. And one of the commentaries said, whatever you're thinking, it's worse. It said that you're missing the point if you're trying to figure out what this word actually meant, that what it is is there is nastiness in her cup. And so be very cautious that you're not taken in, that you're not enticed by her. And a mysterious name, a mysterious name means kind of an open secret. We all know who I'm talking about here. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. And I could see she was drunk. She was drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. She was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. You know, 
That's what blood does to you. It goes straight to your head. You know, whenever there's a revolution, you see, you see the same pattern over and over again. I have accepted these people as part of our movement. They're fellow travelers. But come the revolution, I'm going to line them up against the wall with everybody else, with the bourgeois. We're going to kill them all. We're going to purify the revolution. We're going to have a purge. And the purge becomes a reign of terror. Blood goes straight to your head. And she's drunk with the blood of God's holy people. And I stared at her in complete amazement. So that's Babylon. And in the rest of chapter 17, we hear the way Babylon is enticing. But we shouldn't bet on her because she's got a short shelf life. We read later on in this chapter that the beast actually hates her and is already planning to kill her. Babylon is enticing, but don't bet on Babylon because she has a short shelf life. In chapter 18, we read this this ghastly sort of funeral. It's like the worst funeral imaginable where no one can say anything good about the departed. Everyone who speaks simply says, look how bad Babylon was. Look at the evil and the corruption of Babylon. Alas, alas, Babylon. And then in chapter 19, we get the the hallelujahs. Praise the Lord. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute. Praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Praise our God. Hallelujah. All his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And then John sees heaven opened. And a white horse is standing there. Its rider is named Faithful and True. Faithful and True. Think of that in contrast with a prostitute. The love Jesus has for us is real. It is true. It is not a commercial transaction. It will be there in the morning, and the morning after that, and the morning after that. How do you know it's true? Because he wears a robe that is dipped in blood. This is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. His eyes were like flames of fire, and his head, on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. What does that mean? To us, that's just weird. Why would anyone have a name that no one understands? You know, what do you call them? That's the point. In the ancient world, to have someone's name, particularly to have a divine name, was to have the keys that unlocked the door. The the way to invoke the God was to articulate his name. And John is saying, nobody is pulling Jesus' strings. Jesus has a name that no one can invoke except himself. If he does something, it is because he is sovereign and because he wills it to be true. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen. Again, this is wedding clothes. The bride wore the same clothes before. The armies of heaven follow behind him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. The only weapon in this whole scene, the only weapon among all the armies of heaven is the sword of truth that comes from the mouth of God, the word of God. And he will rule them. He will shepherd them with an iron rod, a rod that is too strong. Nothing can harm this rod. He will shepherd the nations. But he is also trampling out the vintage 
where the grapes of wrath are stored. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Babylon is a puppet. The beast is already planning her death. And the beast, in turn, is a puppet for the dragon. The dragon is our ancient adversary, the devil. He is a pretender. He wishes he had the throne, but he doesn't. Jesus is king of all kings and Lord of all lords. So what do we do with this? Well, the the message John wants us to, to hold on to is this. He says, if you are being persecuted, if you are facing persecution, hang on, because help is coming. It'll be a little bit longer, but help is on the way. John says, hang on. But he tells everyone, don't be enticed, because Babylon is there and she looks good, but her goblet is filled with filth. Don't be enticed by Babylon. I think really that's a picture of the Christian life. That, that there is always a temptation to take the shortcut, the quick fix, the cheap thrill. But instead, we should hang on because help is coming. I think that's a general statement and we can apply it in every area of our life. But to do justice to the book of Revelation and John's concern with the persecution that Rome was inflicting on the church, I think it's appropriate for us to reflect on what does this look like in our civic life as people who are involved in the functioning of a civil society. What does this look like for us? There's a bumper sticker I often see at um, meetings of pastors um, can you show the the bumper sticker, God is not a Republican? So I see this bumper sticker a lot on cars, and whenever I see it, it says, God is not a Republican or a Democrat. Whenever I see that in a car, I think to myself, sure. Because pastors are the worst, okay? <laughs> Whoever put that on their car, they don't really believe it. They know God is one or the other. Or maybe, honestly, they, they know God is not. But they have to keep reminding themselves every time they go to their car. So we're the worst. Um, in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the British uh, writer, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in it, he imagines a correspondence between a senior demon who is at a high position, or really a low position, deep in the bowels of hell, and he's writing a letter to a junior tempter whose job is to entice someone away from Christianity. And in it, he writes this. He says, let him begin by treating patriotism or pacifism as part of his religion. His religion calls him to be a patriot or to be a pacifist. This is during a time of war. He has to pick sides because his religion demands it. Let him begin there. And then, then let him, under the influence of that partisan spirit, come to regard it, whatever that was, as the most important part. You can't really be a Christian unless you are a patriot or unless you are a pacifist. Let him regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause. I'm a patriot. 
oh, and also I'm a Christian. I'm a pacifist. And also I'm a Christian. And once you have made the world an end and faith a means, well, you've almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Next. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. This is Babylon. This is what Babylon does. Babylon tempts us and says, there is a quick fix to this social ill that disturbs you. There is a quick fix to the war. There is a quick fix that's available. And all you have to do is make the cause your end and religion a means. I've been disturbed. Let me show you how this works out. Um, I've got two more. We don't have editorial cartoons today. I mean, I'm, if there's newspapers still, um, and I hear that's iffy, um, uh, they may still have editorial cartoons, but most of us don't see editorial cartoons. We go on Facebook and somebody puts a, put, they share a meme for us. And let me show you two memes that show how this works out. Um, it says, Obama, this is Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Obama is not a foreign born socialist giving away free health care. That would be me. I think whoever whoever put that up there had some clarity on an issue that they said, this is the way Jesus actually thinks. But two can play at that game. The next picture is a similar meme. Jesus at Sermon on the Mount again. He says, give to the poor, feed the hungry, heal those who are sick. And somebody says, but Jesus, can't we just pay more taxes to the Romans and let them do it for us? And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to start again from the top. Let me know where I've lost you. <laughs> These editorial cartoons show our problem. It's so easy for us to see the flaw in the other person's argument, that they actually think Jesus is opposed to free health care, or that they actually think that the way Jesus wants Christians to be Christians is to have the Romans do all those acts of mercy for them. It's so easy to see the flaw in the other person's interpretation of Christianity, and it's so hard for us to see it in our own interpretation. I've been disturbed this past week uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, all you've got to do is look at the news. But as disturbed as I've been by the thought that there are, in this country, people who will actually band together and march in support of white nationalism, I'm also disturbed by images like this next one. I see two bullhorns in that picture. And you know, the nature of a bullhorn is it's hard to listen when you have a bullhorn in your hands. This next picture shows how it can be even harder than that. It's hard to listen to someone when you're beating them up. And I think for too many of us, that's what Babylon leads us to. We see a good whether we're right or wrong. I mean, some people think that white nationalism is a good. I disagree. But they see a good and they say, there is a means I can use right here at hand, Babylon, with her pretty little golden cup. And I can use that means to achieve my end. So we become Facebook culture. 
We post our little memes on Facebook, and the ones we like, we click like and we share, and the ones we don't like, we block and we unfollow. Maybe we report them for abuse. Because we want to live in a little echo chamber where we never hear anyone warning us. You know, that's Babylon. And it's not just us. It's not just us as individuals, as pastors. It's the church. For 200, 300 years, Christianity was illegal. And they had to lock the doors to keep people out. It grew from a tiny sect in an obscure corner of the empire to the predominant religion of the greatest empire on earth in 300 years, all while being illegal. And then in 311, a guy named Constantine became emperor, and he made it legal. And honestly, that's when Babylon got its hooks in Christianity. And I'm not saying that everything that has flowed since then has been bad, but everything bad has flown from that. The Inquisition, the Crusades, Christians have said, here is a quick fix. Here's an easy way. Here's a shortcut to achieve the thing I want to achieve. And the world will be better if I use it. But the problem is, when you lie down with a dog, you get up with fleas. In 1933, when Adolf Hitler was consolidating his power, one of the places, one of the competing sources of power in German culture was the church. So he said, I've got to get this under my thumb too. So he created something called the German Christian Church. And in it would be Lutheran churches, Reformed churches, and independent congregations. They would all answer to a supreme, kind of an archbishop of Canterbury for Germany, kind of a supreme head of the German Protestant church. And the German Christian church proposed things like this. No one could be a pastor in a German Christian church if they didn't have pure Aryan descent. For that matter, no one could really be a pastor if they opposed nationalism, uh, national socialism. They proposed taking the Old Testament out of the Bible because it was a Jewish book. And there were Christians who joined that church. The good news is it was a minority because a different group sprang up called the German Confessing Church. Or pardon me, the Confessing Church Movement. Um, and the German Confessing, the Confessing Church they drafted a document called the, called the Barman Declaration. It's actually in the Presbyterian Book of Confessions. We include it among our statements of faith as well. And in it, they make it perfectly clear that the church is not an organ of the state, that there is a distinction between church and state, which in Germany had never been articulated as clearly before. The primary author of that document was... Karl Barth, he was a Swiss theologian teaching in a German university. And one day after he wrote the Barman Declaration, the Gestapo showed up in his classroom and they walked him to the railroad station and they put him on a train back to Switzerland and said, don't return. 
he got back to Switzerland. But others were not as fortunate. The executive in charge of the, the, the administrative executive of the confessing church, he was arrested and murdered in a concentration camp. And over the next several years, hundreds of pastors were arrested. Because Babylon is drunk on the blood of God's holy people. Babylon will not accept an alternative source of power. And Jesus calls us not to make common cause with Babylon. Not to be enticed, no matter how pretty she looks and no matter how sparkly that cup is in her hands. But instead to trust that help is coming. The rider is on his horse and soon heaven will open. One of the great things about chapter 19 is... Hollywood thinks Armageddon's a big deal. How many movies have been made about Armageddon? You know how much space Armageddon gets in the Bible? It happens between two verses. It says, Then all the armies arrayed against the Lamb, and then they were captured. We don't hear a word about Armageddon because it's an anticlimax. It's a foregone conclusion. The sword of truth, the word of God, is the only weapon that's required because Babylon ultimately is false. Babylon is a puppet of a puppet of a pretender. So don't be enticed by Babylon. And hang on, because help is coming. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this... uh, Revelation, this confusing set of images. Lord, we are, we're overwhelmed by the sheer spectacle that John communicates to us. And we, with the best of intentions, Lord, we cannot get our heads wrapped around more than a fraction of it, Lord. But it is clear that you warn us not to be enticed by the world, the system that says power is what matters and might makes right. But instead to trust, to hang on, to wait for the help that is coming. We pray, Lord, you'd give us the patience to do so. We pray especially for those who are facing overt persecution where patience is so much harder. These things, Lord, we ask in the name of the one whose name is faithful and true. Amen.